Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming back to us to Mac Emerge podcast for our August 2021 episode. If you've been here before and listened to us, Thank you for coming back and enjoying another awesome episode from our team. That being said, if you're a new listener, welcome. And make sure to check out our other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, or uh, you can search us on our website. Just go to Google, search Mac Emerge Podcast, and you'll probably be the first hit out there. And that's the same as on Apple Podcasts. So take a listen to all of our almost 30 episodes that are out there, and you'll learn a lot about our local community merge and our physicians and some of the awesome clinical medical education and research work that we've done over the past three years or so. Now, my name is Kevin Dong and I'm one of the podcast producers and I guess the OGs, the original uh, group uh, or the other word for it. But uh, I'm here today to share with you a cool case that I had recently and And for the purpose of patient confidentiality, I have obviously changed a few of the data. And in any way, would this be tied back to the patient? But I just wanted to share this case with you as I think it would be a good learning point for our listeners who are always looking for interesting cases to learn from. And that's what it's all about. So let me take you to this story. A few weeks ago, I had a young-ish patient, someone who was in her mid-twenties, who came to us via ambulance because her boyfriend had been concerned about this patient and her inability to eat. When myself and my resident physician went to go see this patient, she looked older than her age, but she looked quite unwell. When I looked at her head, you can immediately see that the left side of her face, the lower side of her face near the jaw and her neck looked quite swollen and almost red and quite tender to touch. When we tried to get a great history from her, she had told us that in the last two to three days, she's noticed quite a lot of pain in her, in her throat on the left side. And then she noticed that in the last day, her neck had started to get swollen up. We asked her some of the red flag questions. For example, she had trouble swallowing. She felt hoarse. And she felt like there was something stuck in the back of her throat and she wasn't able to clear it out. She also had trouble moving her neck and also exhibited a fever on her vitals. When I looked at her vitals, she had a temperature of 38.5. Heart rate was about 100. Her rest rate was about 20. Her blood pressure was good at 120 over 70. And her 
oxygen saturation was at a 98% on room air. Now this was particularly a busy emerge day. And so we hadn't got to this patient as fast as we now in hindsight would have liked, but immediately when I saw the patient, my resident and I looked at each other and said, there's something wrong. The first thing we did was, well, get a good history. We asked about what she's been doing the last three days and she was quite with it and alert and oriented and her GCS was 15. So she was able to give us a good history, although mumbling, but she had told us that unfortunately she is a drug user and had done some IV drugs in the past, but not recently. Really all she said was that she was having throat pain and this neck swelling and now inability to really eat and drink. She wasn't having any shortness of breath, but she said that every time she was taking a breath, she felt some chest pains and felt like she wanted to cough. She said she felt weak with myalgias and just not herself. Her past medical history otherwise was healthy. She was not pregnant and she was not on any medications. Otherwise she was a smoker and she did not drink any alcohol. Now on physical exam, we obviously did a full head to toe, but where the money was at was her head and neck exam. Her face looked like she had punched in the face on the right jaw where the submandibular area would be. And her neck was quite swollen and quite tender to touch. Her, the bottom of her neck wasn't hard. And when I tried to get her to open her mouth, she was able to, and when I stuck my finger in, obviously telling her not to bite on my finger, um, she was quite tender at the bottom of her mouth and kind of near her gums uh, on the vestibular side. Her tongue wasn't swollen. And unfortunately, I was not able to look at the back of the mouth to see if there was some kind of abscess or, or peritonsillar involvement. However, obviously, that was one of the things we had thought about. Looking at this patient, we wanted to get some investigations and get things started. Now, before I move on, just think for yourself what this could be. Obviously, it's an interesting case. And so the differential is broad, but there are a few things I wanted to rule out. So for example, she had all of the red flag symptoms and signs and things I wanted to rule out were peritonsillar abscess, retropharyngeal abscess, things like Ludwig's angina, some kind of D-space infection, especially because she has a history of IV drug use. I was concerned about septic emboli or other weird things that could be considering she could be also immunocompromised. The resident and I decided that the best course would be to investigate what was going on in the neck by going straight to a CT scan with contrast to determine if there was an abscess that was causing her symptoms, as well as order investigations such as blood work, including a CRP. And then we also wanted to make sure that we moved her to a safe space so that her airway was something that we were always in control of. And obviously we were afraid of this. However, when we did see her, she was talking and able to speak to us. And we thought that we had a little bit of time in terms of the airway and breathing and circulation. However, we also did some empirical treatment, obviously getting some blood cultures, but started her on some broad spectrum antibiotics. Because of her history, I just wanted to make sure that we were not missing something 
like Staph aureus or some resistant beta-lactamase producing organism. So I'd started on piptazo vancomycin, but also added clindamycin for kind of endocarditis treatment. So after that, we had seen other patients and we were kind of skipping through a little bit, obviously always having our eyes on the back of our heads, watching out for her and making sure that she didn't deteriorate. We had spoken with the nurse also to make sure that we kept her on monitors and that if there was any signs of deterioration that she was to let us know so that we can obviously intervene. And after a while, the radiologist called me back. And whenever the radiologist calls you, you know that there's something wrong because, you know, the radiologists are super swamped with probably 30 CTs to read. And the radiologist calls and says, is this Dr. Dong? I said, yeah, of course. And she goes, hey, this CT is kind of weird. And I say, why? What's going on? And she goes, well, there is definitely an infection and there is a potential collection in the left side. And she goes, what does the patient look like? Is the patient okay? And I said, yes. And she says, well, luckily the airway, there is definitely an opening. So she's able to, to maintain her airway, but there definitely is what it looks like is a thrombosis, some kind of blockage in the internal jugular vein. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. And in my training, going back in the, my head, I said, that's something that I know. There's a name, there's an eponym for this. And then the radiologist and I kind of look at each other, or well, I guess we didn't look at each other, but we had taken a small collective pause and we we're like, oh, this is Lemire syndrome. Now, for people who don't know what that is, that's okay. Because I remember seeing or hearing about a patient like this when I was in residency and thinking same thing. I didn't know what that was. Now, if you know what that is, that's great, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a a summary on what Lemire syndrome is for a refresher. And for people who don't know what that is, that's totally okay. And that's why you're listening to our podcast. So Lemire syndrome is an infection that starts in the throat, usually in young people, most commonly from the ages of 15 to 24. And it usually is from a bacteria that grows in your mouth. And actually they say around up to 10% of tonsillar infections could be due to this bacterium called Fusobacterium necroforum or the Fusobacterium species. And rarely, but they can move from the neck, from the tonsillar space and protrude into the neck space and invade the jugular vein, the internal jugular vein and cause an infection and thrombosis or clot to form in the vein itself. This causes obvious neck swelling. Sometimes it could produce even abscesses. And because this is uh, a clot and thrombosis, it could, it could cause septic movements of that clot into various organ spaces around the body. Most commonly your lungs, but you can get it in your bones. You can get it in your brain because it can ret retroflux back. You can get it in your muscles. And so this is essentially a septic emboli where the nidus of the infection is from your tonsils and your throat. Patients usually present with kind of septic picture from the oropharyngeal infection with the unilateral neck pain causing the internal jugular thrombophlebitis. And then some of these people may have also signs of septic emboli. So when you do an x-ray and sure enough with this patient, when I did an x-ray of her chest, there were 
what it looked like was septic emboli all over her uh, lungs as well. Now, after seeing this patient and having Lemire syndrome as the top differential, we had called the appropriate services and ear, nose, throat uh, or ENT service was consulted and they were swift and they came very quickly to see the patient. The usual treatment is the administration of intravenous antibiotics and usually empiric treatment should cover anaerobic organisms, strep and staph species, and also the coverage of beta-lactamase producing organisms. So for example, Fusobacterium necroforum have had some association with being one of those organisms. So treating it with piperacillin, tazobactam would be the safest choice, but something that is broad coverage, things like clindamycin, metronidazole is totally appropriate. Now, some of you might say, well, this is a thrombophlebitis and a clot forming infection. Do you need to be on anticoagulation? And that's actually quite contested and controversial. However, if you do have a full blockage of the vein from the thrombophlebitis, there may be some benefits for anticoagulation. This is where you need to speak to your thrombosis colleagues for help. Lastly, if there are any collections that are formed, for example, an abscess or any deep space infection, this is where you need to get your ENT colleagues involved so that they may be able to drain the abscess or explore to uh, make sure that this is not a necrotizing infection. So to recap, Lemire syndrome should be suspected in young patients with severe neck pain, as well as a septic picture with red flag symptoms of oropharyngeal infection. It should be part of your ENT emergencies differential. And if they have any signs that there is some form of septic emboli traveling in the body, Lemire syndrome should be on the top of that differential. You should investigate with CT scans, as well as consult your specialist early, maintain your ABCDEs, and treat empirically with broad coverage antibiotics covering for beta-lactamase producing organisms. Other things like treatment of pain, nausea, and providing fluids are good ways and to make sure that they're in a monitored setting. So that's my cool case for this month's episode. Hope you enjoyed that cool case. Think about it, read about it. And if you have any questions or comments or thoughts about cool cases with myself, Kevin Dong, please let me know. Hope you enjoyed this one. Have a good one, everybody. Hello, Mac and Merge listeners. This is Teresa Chan, and I am here with someone that I've known since high school. Dr. Cien Xiao is a palliative care researcher in the Department of Oncology. So say hi to everyone, Cien. Hi, everyone. Hi, Mac and Merge. Pleasure to be on this podcast. Now, so you probably know a bunch of our docs are actually kind of into palliative care and work with different things to improve the systems of care around oncologic processes, but also other things. And it's exciting kind of area to be a specialist in, but I know that you've gone beyond research into, you know, experience-based co-design and other types of design thinking work, but most recently 
the most exciting project I think you've done in a while for for you for me is is your new podcast so as a fellow podcaster welcome to the crowd and can you tell us about the origin story of your podcast and what its name is first of all thank you so much yes our podcast is called the waiting room revolution and we came up with that name because we realized that patients and families needed to be activated and not be you know scared and frightened in the waiting room and because i do palliative care research the problem that we really faced, me and my co-host, Dr. Samantha Winemaker, she's a palliative care physician in the community. And so we both had the shared experience of always seeing people at the 11th hour. You know, people approach palliative care and introduce it near the end of life, as she would say, at the 11th hour. And it was always too late to do so many of the things. Patients and families had traveled so much of their journey already. And we call it, they were already, in, they've been in the dark the whole time. They've been scared. They feel overwhelmed unprepared. And we wanted to move them to being in the know. And we really didn't know how, but we knew that it was important. And I think a lot of the Mac Emerge listeners will appreciate this because they will see these patients come to the ED, you know, late when people really don't have an illness understanding. And you're asking them about, you know, DNR orders or choices or even made potentially, and without full information of really what, what choices they have and who they are. And so we wanted to change that storyline. And what we did is we, we got a little bit of grant money. We talked to patients and families upstream in the illness journey. We went through some of the stories and the research interviews that I've done with providers and patients and families. And we tried to find what would make a difference. Why was this happening? And what could we do? And our podcast, season one, which has just started and is available everywhere, really found seven keys that would lead to a better experience. And the keys were things that anyone could do at any time, and even patients and families. And I think that was really the key because in a world where we feel so powerless and helpless, you know, like uh, the COVID vaccines, so many decisions are being made and we have no input into. But what we were saying in this podcast is we realized some patients, families could, you could learn and ask questions that would change your experience that does not require permission or, you know, new money to do. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's really exciting to hear about the origin story of your podcast. Do you have anything that you like, should we just listen from the beginning? Is it like a continuous one? Should we listen to the most recent one? Is it meant to be like a series? Can you tell us about how we should listen to it? Yeah. Season one was really our sort of, I call it our our magnus opus, right? Where we, we really thought of the 10 episodes in order and it starts with our origin story and ends with sort of putting it all together. So I would encourage listeners to do season one from the beginning to the end. And in fact, we have things like a podcast club where we go through each of the keys and and talk about each one in depth um, on Zoom and such. But, you know, after that season two is out now, it's a spring series. We're interviewing really fabulous people. We hope to have you on, Teresa, soon. Um, And, you know, in future, we've had really great response from healthcare providers because our keys were described in the framework of what patients and families, the stories, and we tell stories of patients and families. But we've great had amazing response from listeners from the Mac community and others who are healthcare providers. And so we're starting to talk with them now and we hope to put them together into you know, future episodes. So I think the conversation is really about what can be done upstream. What do those look like? Where are the missed opportunities? And how do we use different language that may or may not include the word palliative care, but probably not. That is just plain language that allows us to invite people into the conversation from either side, either doctors inviting patients to being like, what's important to you? Or patients and to doctors saying, hey, I'm the kind of person who really likes a lot of information. So you won't depress me if we sort of talk very frankly and don't sugarcoat things. These are all ways 
that allow people to infuse, you know, patient-centered care into their journey and not just at the end when very tough decisions have to be made, but throughout the whole journey, which is very harrowing for everyone involved. All right. Well, thank you very much. And again, if you're trying to recommend this to your friends, your family, your patients, it's the waiting room revolution. And you could be able to find it on basically any of the podcast apps. And so I think it's worth a listen and congratulations on uh, kickstarting a new venture. Thanks so much, Teresa. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mac Emerge podcast. And this is, of course, Resident Corner. And I'm Ben, one of the R2s in the Emerge program here at Mac. This month, we're going to be speaking with one of our R4s, Dr. Chad Singh, about the new sub trauma team leader or sub TTL rotation at our local trauma center here in Hamilton at Hamilton General Hospital. Chad, thanks for taking the time of your study schedule to speak with me. Ben, it's, it's always a pleasure. Uh, it's, never, it's never me taking time out. I'm always excited to, to join and just talk about what new things we have going on within our program. Yeah, awesome. I know you're, uh, you're really excited about this new change and sounds like it's been a really exciting block. So I'm excited to hear a bit more about it. Absolutely. Now, I know that our trauma rotation for our uh, senior residents at McMaster Emerge used to look a fair bit different from our current sub-TTL block. From your understanding, why was this change made to the new sub-TTL role? Yeah, so just for a bit of context, uh, what are old rotation used to look like was prior to the amalgamation of both the inpatient general surgery ACS service and the trauma admitting inpatient service, there were two separate teams that would cover these patients. So you would have a junior resident and a senior resident covering general surgery ACS patients, and you would have a trauma resident and a trauma fellow covering the trauma inpatient service. On top of that, the trauma residents would also uh, attend and and be the pseudo TTLs for that day. What happened was, is that the ACS service and trauma inpatient team actually became one enormous team. And that is now run fully by general surgery residents, uh, our emergency uh, junior residents, uh, and various other residents as well who are rotating on that team. That left a bit of a void for, uh, for our, our seniors who have, in essence, gone through general surgery already. And out of that, uh, we spawned a new rotation, and that's the sub-TTL rotation that we see now. Yeah, I think it's a great response to the change in the restructuring of our trauma and acute care surgery colleagues and how they've amalgamated to this, it's called TRACS. Uh, model where the trauma inpatients in the acute care surgery inpatients, so patients with uh, appendicitis, cholecystitis, bowel obstructions, they're all mixed together, which as an R1 who recently rotated through the trauma and acute care surgery service can be quite overwhelming with this new massive team uh, and made it a very good experience for me to see the inpatient side of trauma as well as uh, the general surgery practice. But I can imagine as an R3, you don't want to be necessarily doing the same work that we're doing as R1s on our general surgery service. 
when that's not necessarily going to be your role a few years from now, once you graduate from the program. And totally, I, I, I completely agree that there is huge benefit in looking after these patients, seeing what complications they can get after they leave the trauma bay. But as you stated, Ben, these are things that we've done uh, in R1. We've already, we've already got that experience under our belt. And uh, as R3s, we're, we're looking for something a little bit different. And I think that's what the sub-TTL rotation brings to the table. Uh, it allows us to be more in line with what we'll be doing as, as staff emerge docs or uh, and even emerge docs who, who take TTL call. It's more in line with our education goals as a, as a senior resident. With that in mind, can you actually explain what the sub-TTL block looks like in terms of both the schedule and then your clinical role as sub-TTL? In terms of scheduling, uh, there are usually... Uh, at most two emergency residents that are on uh, at any given time. Sometimes there's three. And our schedule is basically broken down into uh, 15-hour on-call shifts, usually done in the evenings. Um, If you're on the weekends, you can choose to do a 24-hour call. And essentially, you are scheduled for days and nights. Really, it's as is trauma. Anything can happen at any time. So in terms of clinical time, when a trauma activation comes in, you receive the page as the sub-TTL, you head down to the trauma bay, and you are actually the, the de facto trauma team leader. Sure, you have your staff backup who's behind you, you're running the show. And that's the whole point of this rotation. From the time that trauma patient comes into the trauma bay to the time they're actually admitted to the floor to the ICU, you are the leader, you're calling the shots. Of course, you're having that input from the staff TTLs who have your back 100% of the time but it really gives you that independence and that leadership role that you're looking for in this rotation. It really gives you the ability to run everything how you want to run it while getting that feedback, that constant feedback throughout the entire activation. It's really interesting. It's really a focus on that kind of, I guess, maybe not the golden 15 minutes, the golden hour of trauma resuscitation, where you have the initial assessment and then making those the resuscitation decisions, uh, all of those at the bedside. Sounds like a very interesting block and absolutely in line with what you would do as a trauma team leader. Absolutely. Even from making those decisions about what imaging adjuncts do you need? Who gets TXA? Is this person going to go to the ICU? These are all decisions that are are really being integrated into this rotation because you're not just the junior resident on the admitting service, you're now the leader of this resuscitation. This sub-TTL role has really improved our ability to really manage some of these sick trauma patients from front all the way till the end of their resuscitation. And as a sub-TTL, when does your role stop? So at what point in the resuscitation or the workup of this patient, Are you then handing them over to the inpatient admitting team and you kind of take a step back and wait for that next trauma fan out? In reality, it actually ends when uh, that patient, if their disposition, for instance, is going to the ICU, it ends when you are handing over that patient to the ICU doctor. If that patient is going to the OR, you're actually taking that patient up to the OR and, and giving that handover to the trauma surgeon who may be upstairs. In terms of the inpatient uh, tracks team that admits these patients, they're usually present for all of the trauma activations. But again, you're giving that handover, you're giving some of that advice as to what you might want to see for this patient order in terms of blood work in the morning or things they might have to follow up on 
uh, antibiotic choices. These are all things that you're having in-depth discussions with your colleagues who are going to be admitting these patients. I think it really highlights the kind of longitudinal care you're providing in those first few hours, even on these trauma patients and the importance of that handover, because these are very complex patients with very dynamic pathophysiology. Absolutely. Now, you recently completed your block as sub-TTL. What were some of the difficulties you faced in this new role? I think some of the difficulties that I faced initially were the decision to do this rotation uh, either from home or staying in-house for activations. Me personally, I live within 10 minutes of the hospital, so it is very quick for me to, to drive in when there's an activation. What I found, though, is the level of stress that I was feeling as the sub-TTL, as the resident coming in from home, not having any information about the patient, really showing up and, and almost missing that first 10 minutes of the acute resuscitation. To me, that was not worth it. And I wanted to get everything out of this rotation that I could. So I chose to stay in-house for the duration of this entire rotation. Now, what that means is, is that for the 9 to 12 shifts that you're booking for this rotation, you're essentially spending a lot of time in the hospital. You're not always on. I personally have a black cloud, so I happen to have a lot of activations and I was quite busy on this rotation, but there's definitely some downtime where, you know, you kind of have to plan what you're going to be doing. How are you going to get meals? All of those things come into play when you're essentially living in the hospital uh, for a rotation. I found towards the end of my rotation, though, that that anxiety of missing out on the first 10 minutes, that kind of eased. I would check in with the charge nurse if anything was coming in. I did opt to spend uh, the last two of my calls at home, and I did them from home. Yeah, I think that, that brings up a good point. As a sub-TTL as well, you don't necessarily have to be in hospital, but you have to be close. And you're right that these resuscitations aren't ones where they start off slow, then they pick up steam. Those first 10 minutes, you could have someone intubated with bilateral chest tubes and, you know, long bone deformities drawn out to length and already have, uh, you know, you know, good peripheral access or even considering starting central access. So you bring up lots of good points about that first 10, 15 minutes and the importance, at least early on, of being there and being ready. I can relate that to some of my experiences just as a JMR, a medicine call, when you're part of the code blue team. And I had to make that decision when I'm going to like lay down in my call room to go to sleep. Do I like take off my shoes? At the start, I was like, I don't know. I have to go run. I have to go do chest compressions. By the end, you get a bit more comfortable and you, and you understand, uh, I think, the uh, acuity and perhaps the, the benefit of taking those 10, 15 seconds you know, to slowly get things going, but it, it's hard to not feel that anxiety that you might miss something important in that initial resuscitation. I can say, Ben, that for my first few trauma calls, I did in fact go to bed with my shoes on because I was actually running back and forth to the trauma bay from my call room. So you're not alone with, with that thought. Yeah. And for the people who know the McMaster call wing at, uh, the general, you're in for a little run there. That's like half a K uphill. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Now you told me about some of the things that made it a bit more of a challenges of uh, sub TTL. Any tips on how to make the most of this block 
Uh, first off, I, I want to highlight that this rotation, to my knowledge, is one of the most unique rotations outside of any other programs um, training in emergency medicine. We are, like I was saying earlier, the sub-TTL, or in fact, we're, we are the trauma team leader for these resuscitations. And to make the most out of the rotation, I think you just have to let your goals and your educational goals be known to whoever that staff TTL is on for the night. I have a lot of their phone numbers and I would usually send them a text message and say, hey, I'm on with you until 7 a.m. This is what I want to practice tonight. This is what I want to do tonight. Do I want to be the one putting in the chest tube? If there's a thoracotomy, I'm the one that wants to do it. And letting those goals be known to them so that your staff can really facilitate those educational uh, goals for you. The other things that I found uh, in terms of tips for making the block go smoothly. Every time I would come into the hospital, I would check in with two teams. I would, I would check in with the charge nurse and the trauma nurses. And I would also check in with the emergency doctor who was on. And I would do that at 5 p.m. when I came on for call. And again, at nursing handover at around 7.15. Just so that everyone knew who I was what my role was in the, in the department that day. As you get more senior, uh, you tend to know the, know the nurses and you tend to know the eMERGE docs a little bit more. And sometimes they can mistake you for, oh, are you on for emergency service or are you on for TTL service? So I think really communicating that early on, it decreases confusion in the trauma bay. The last tip that I would, I would really like to belabor is the importance of names and the importance of really communicating what everyone's role in the trauma bay is. Trauma is a team sport and it's always going to be a team sport. And I think to facilitate that teamwork to the highest degree is really understanding what everyone's role is in that trauma and knowing everyone by their name. You're going to be working with these people for the entire night and it's going to be the same team that gathers every activation. So knowing everyone by the first name it allows for clear lines of communication, knowing the nurses' names. It, it increases that familiarity so that when things are really going sour, when the patient is really sick, that teamwork is always going to be at the highest level because you're able to communicate. You're able to look that person in the eye and call them by their first name. And closed loop communication in those cases is always better when you know your teammates' names. Amazing. Those are some pearls that I'll definitely take forward with me on both my uh, sub TTL blocks and other blocks to come. I think it's so important to have an emphasis on that communication and making sure the group is familiar with who you are, uh, especially as you go through to make sure the merge doc understands that, yeah, Chad is sub TTL tonight. That's why he's standing at the foot of the bed. That's why he's leading this resuscitation. Well, Chad, thank you so much for all your insights. I really appreciate it. And I know uh, future residents to come will also appreciate it. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out! <laughs>